1: This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a podcast about making work better. So if you're listening to this, generally you're probably interested in the way that work's evolving, the way that work might be um, changing in the face of remote working and hybrid working, but you're also probably an enthusiast about making work more enjoyable. And this elusive idea that good workplace culture may be the the, one of the contributory factors for good workplace productivity and good results. And certainly that, that's always been my philosophy. Along the way, I've looked at the culture at Netflix, I've culture, looked at the culture at Uber, at uh, Microsoft. I've really done a deep dive into a number of different organisations, including Liverpool FC, including Barcelona. So I've tried to to tackle it from a diverse perspective. But one of the things I often get asked is, could you take a look at Amazon? And I guess the reason why there's a real curiosity with Amazon is that there's a big difference between Amazon and a lot of the other uh, tech firms. Now, Netflix have got this in common too, but Amazon and Netflix are the are the two big firms where their reinventions and their innovations have come from within. So specifically, um, you know, we, we might associate tech firms, we might associate Google with being innovative and no doubt it's because, you know, whether it's Google Maps, whether it's YouTube, whether it's Waze, whether it's Android, there's no, no shortage of Google products that we use all the time that we can't help but be wowed by. But the really critical thing is that in common with Facebook's other products, which might be uh, the, the ones you're going to use are things like Instagram, WhatsApp, maybe Oculus, both of those companies have bought all of their innovation Amazon, in contrast, have made their own. So Amazon have built Kindle Fire, they've built Prime, they've built Amazon Web Services. And so you can't help but have a curiosity, a fascination with this thing that Jeff Bezos called building the innovations engine. I've really been fascinated with it. And I had the opportunity this week to talk to someone who has been a long term Amazonian, as it turns out they're called. And so this is today's episode. Today's episode is going deep on specifically what the Amazon culture looked like internally. I'm speaking to Colin Breyer. Colin is a long-term Amazon exec. We're going to talk through his experience of working there. He's just written a book alongside another former Amazon alumni, Bill Carr. And the the book is called Working Backwards, Insight Stories and Secrets from Inside Amazon. We're going to go through this in in detail. There was one thing that really stood out as differentiating for me. So we're going to go through the recruitment process. And the reason why I'm especially interested in that is quite often when I chat to different companies and they tell me about their culture, I always say to them, wonderful, can you, can you tell me what your recruitment process is? And, you know, you've probably heard me mention that before, but it's largely because it gives light to the fact that they don't really have a culture. If, if someone's uh, interview process is undifferentiated, sending someone into a room with a CV, then, you know, any claims that they might subsequently have about a differentiated culture are largely based on just emotion. Look, there's no shame in that, but don't try to overpromise about your culture if your interview process is an amateur one. So he exp- he really articulates why their interview process is different. I've seen something similar in tech firms but there's one thing that really stands out and I've sort of um, I've gone deep on it in this week's newsletter if you are interested in the newsletter you'll find that at eatsleepworkrepeat.com for me it really stands out and you're going to hear me call this out in the the interview but it's this idea of separable single threaded leadership this is the idea that The objective really inside the organisation is to try and give people responsibility and projects responsibility without intervening and and intruding into other areas. So it largely comes from this comment that Jeff Bezos said. Uh, He said one day, the best way to fail at inventing something is by making it someone's part time job. And he realised that one of the challenges of working in these these companies with so many overlapping departments is that there's so many codependencies and so many relationships that need to be serviced. You can end up spending your whole day communicating. It's a really interesting thing. Bezos decided if we want Amazon to be a place where builders can build, we need to eliminate communication, not encourage it. Wow. This is breathtaking for me. If you've been listening over the last few weeks and months, I've featured the likes of Cal Newport talking about how we might want to eliminate and and reduce the amount of Zoom calls and emails that we're on. And this seems a perfect example of when you do those things well. Effectively, it can be the engine of your of your performance. He talks about some other things. He's one of the things that's quoted in the book is that um, Colin talks about this idea that Jeff's vision was that we needed to focus on loosely coupled interaction via machines through well-defined APIs rather than via humans through emails and meetings. This would free each team to act autonomously and move faster. Now, Obviously, that might have a really difficult application for your own business, but it's really interesting to think about what could you do to remove some of the codependencies or to turn them into quarterly updates or to have someone, one person who acted as like the the points person who, who helped coordinate projects. Really stimulating discussion. So here it is. Here's my discussion, uh, really going deep on the Amazon culture. This is a discussion between me and Colin Breyer. He's the author of Working Backwards. Colin, thank you so much for joining me. I, I think, you know, one of the requests I get all the time is people say... You've covered Microsoft culture, you've covered Netflix culture, you've covered these other organizations. Please, can you give us an insight into Amazon? I think largely because it lives in this space where it just is consistently innovative and consistently exceeds our expectations. And so I'm so thrilled to speak to you. Do you want to describe
2: how you came to work at Amazon and what you did? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm, I'm honored to be here. But I started working at Amazon in March of 1998. And at that time, uh, Amazon it was just a bookseller just in the US. We had two fulfillment centers, although they were really warehouses with a couple of bookshelves, with several bookshelves. Um, and there were about 100 people in the in the the corporate area. And I started out in the product development team. And, uh, you know, so I got there, I came from a, a startup before we'd actually done some work with Amazon, uh, in, you know, 97, uh, and 98, 96 and 97, and then, um, realized that it was just a special place. So, uh, we, you know, we joined the company, uh, in, in March of 1998 and, um, and you could just feel there's a palpable sense of energy. It was mission-driven. And there was not a whole lot of process either, which was, which was interesting. So I think what Amazon navigated fairly well was how do you change from a hero-driven, um, you know, save-the-day culture to relying on individual efforts to um, scale and uh, remain nimble while growing, you know, 10x uh, every couple of, ye- couple of years. So I think that's one of the things Amazon did that was pretty special
1: and i think if anyone's looking for the manual of how amazon did things differently you've you've effectively written it for them i think you know it's it's a very Um, story-based, but instructive guide about the specifics of what the organization do. We're going to delve into a few of them here. But when people ask you to summarize the Amazon difference, is there something, before we sort of delve into the 10, is there something that you say, man, it's just dot, dot, dot? Is there something that you, you reach
2: for? Well, you know, so Jeff, was, Jeff Bezos has often been asked, well, what is Amazon's culture about? And Amazon has 14 leadership principles. Those are, it's hard to memorize a, a list of 14, especially from the outside looking in. But really, um, if if you were to um, encapsulate what Amazon's culture is about and, you know, what makes it special, it would be uh, customer obsession versus competitor obsession. And, you know, there's also a difference between customer focus and customer obsession, Um, The the second thing is just long term thinking. So Amazon is willing to look at things in the long term, longer than most, you know, not what's uh, coming up next quarter, or what are analysts expecting us to do next quarter, but how can we build a very large business that delivers great value to customers in you know, in, in the time period of years. And then a spirit of invention, and, you know, that goes hand in hand with failure. So if you want to be an inventive company, you have to know that it's okay to fail. You have to make it safe to fail. You have to have processes to handle failure as well as success. And then the last thing is just pride in in operational excellence. You know, a lot of what Amazon does is they get the little details right and that has to come from within, because most uh of the work that people and teams do don't don't see the light of day to customers or even other teams, and so you have to be you have to have the pride to get things right even if no one recognizes it or sees it and so the uh, you can't be a, a low cost provider in terms of cloud computing or to be able to say we're going to deliver if you click." and order this product at 3 p.m. We're going to deliver it. in you know, six hours and 23 minutes later, you can't do that unless you get the little details right.
1: Yeah, I noticed that you said that there were some things just exceeding expectations baked in from the word go. So you sold the from from the outset, you sold the, I don't know, U.S. postal classifications, but you sold to people that their post was going to be delivered in with standard delivery times and actually everything by default was paid to be expedited or something like that i don't know the terminology but that was just interesting explain what that is and what
2: how that decision got made just to be clear we did not upgrade every shipping method and and pay for that but it was you know you you want to under promise and over deliver Um, and the the big reason there is that customer trust takes a long time to build up but it's very easy to lose and you know, and so what we measured at a detailed level across a number of different areas is what are the promises we made to customers and what promises did we keep and what prom- promises did we break knowingly or un- un- unknowingly. And then we worked to obviously to reduce the latter in, in that category. So a promise could be something as simple as showing a product is available on the website because we thought we had it in one of our warehouses where we actually didn't, or it was there, you know, it was in the wrong place and we couldn't find it versus um, we promised to get this product to a customer in X number of hours or days, you know, back then it was measured on days. And so we wanted to, um, uh, under promise because there was a high error bar, and uh, we didn't want to let our customers down.
1: So you mentioned these fourteen values, and I'm going to link to them in the show notes. So if anyone wants to see them, they can they can click to look at those because they're on the website, right? They're sort of these are these are published. And you mentioned, you know, I guess even the the degree of hesitancy when you talk about fourteen, it feels firstly it feels um, like a, a lack a number with a lack of symmetry to it. You know, even f- 12 or 15 has got a poetry to it. So it, it feels like it's sort of driven by um, the immediacy of, of thought that actually we've thought of 14 and we don't want to just add another one. But could could you inform me? So a lot of companies have values and I'm just intrigued. Would you, would you describe them as being used in meetings? Do they live and breathe? You mentioned the customer obsession one, but are there other examples where you've witnessed – someone calling out a value and informing a decision. Because I think a lot of us might say, yeah, you know, my company's got six values and I'm just, I'm really interested. What I'm trying to capture here is the definitive differences because they, the feel we're going to go into a bit in a second, but it feels like there resolutely are some, but I'm just keen to explore exactly where
2: they live. Sure. And one piece of trivia going into it, when the leadership principles were first published, there were 10. Now there are fourteen, and so they they've undergone one revision. So it has to be a, a living, breathing document as the needs of your organization change. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some time in the future there were uh, there was a modification. So you, you always have to uh, one of the documents. Uh, if you read at the bottom of an Amazon document with leadership principles at the bottom, it also says unless you have something better. And so it collects feedback from people. But I would say what, what separates uh, Amazon with its leadership principles from a lot of other companies, uh, well, first of all, 14 is unusually large, you know, to, but, but where Amazon uh, does really well is they take those leadership principles, they've taken them and really stitched them into every major process that the, the company does. And, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, hire and develop the best is, is an example of one leadership principle at Amazon. And there's a whole, uh, uh, hiring process called the Amazon bar Raiser process that is all about how can you uh, find people and hire the best people who actually reinforce your culture versus who are going to try to change your culture once they get there. And so it's a deliberate process to, to assess, do, they, do these candidates that we're, we're talking to, do they embody and have they uh, exhibited the 14 Amazon leadership principles in their past uh, career and past behavior because past behavior is the best predictor of fe- future performance we found at Amazon. Um, you know, thinking big and, uh, and you know, customer obsession really shine in how Amazon uses what's called the working backwards process. You know, it's all about, um, you know, we found that w- uh, a lot of companies when they vet new ideas, they use what's called the skills forward approach You know, they ask, what are we good at? What are our core competencies? What are our competitors doing? Can we nudge into a a market? But we realized we were not mentioning the word customer enough in doing that. And so we came up with a new process called the working backwards process. It's also the title of our book, but it's a very specific process at Amazon to make sure that from the very beginning of an idea, the customer is not forgotten. And then we obsess over the customer experience by writing a press release and FAQ documents until we get it right. And and then only then and only then do we green light the project to say we're going to go do it. So those are a couple examples of where um, where we have stitched the, the leadership principles into the way... Um, Amazon operates, so uh, yes, it's it's actually pretty rare to go through a couple of days at Amazon or a week at Amazon where you're not mentioning or talking about one or more of the the, the leadership principles.
1: Does it feel substantially different to people? So you mentioned um, we're going to go into hiring next, but you mentioned that people are joining the organization and you say that they're being hired for a match, a values match. And um, do people remark when they join? Um, and, and, and we're going to talk about meetings. Uh, the meetings thing aside, do people say, "Wow, this feels substantially different from this other retail organisation I worked at, or this other tech firm I worked at"? Uh,
2: yes, and I would say that that the people who feel that way are actually the more experienced folks who've been at another company for ten or fifteen or twenty years, and then they come into Amazon, and it's a very different way of of, of operating, and um, and so you know part of the the culture and the leadership principles really define who you are and how you make decisions. And there's more than one way to build a great company. You know, this just happens to be Amazon's that that we described. So it, it is a two way evaluation. You know, someone who can work very well at Amazon and flourish may not work very well in another company or another environment, and vice versa. So it's all about finding people who um, like and reinforce this 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 culture. Or you know, if they're not a good fit, maybe there's another type of company that that's that that's better for them. But we found it it is more that the season leaders coming in. It's it's just a little bit of a jarring aspect, and so you'll find that. But once they get started and they start and they they learn and start operating, it's really hard for them to go back to what they what what they did before. Um, it's a different way of working. It's it's fast. You know, it's fast paced. It's it's exhilarating. It's challenging. It's an environment where you can invent and succeed, and work on really large things and impact large number of people. And where if you're not experimenting and failing enough, you're probably not pushing the boundary enough.
1: One of the things I really want to dwell on, and I'm I'm so glad it was right up front in the book, was recruitment. So often when. So often when people talk about their culture being special, they'll say, we've got the best people. And then I always say to them, you know, if if I'm invited to go and uh, evaluate someone's culture or judge an award or whatever, I always say, can you talk me through the specifics of your recruitment process? And what you very quickly gather is their recruitment process is largely, it might have a a, a role-based competency or it might have those... Those, uh, those general cognitive ability, you know, the, how many windows in Seattle question that you mentioned, it might have something like that, but that aside, it's a lucky dip. It's a jamboree. There's, there's nothing in there. Now you, you talk about firstly, this bar raising, uh, as part of the recruitment process, and then you describe the rest of the, the process specifically you've mentioned bar raising here, so what would bar raising look like? Talk me through the recruitment process. how does someone what do you call them do you call them amazonians what do you what do you call the uh, the staff
2: at Amazon by the way the amazonians or yeah Amazon yeah,
1: employees, yeah yeah, um, so, yeah um, so so to be hired into uh, to be an amazonian what talk talk us through the specifics of, of the process and and specifically the, the parts that might differ
2: sure the the so specifically you know amazon they w- do take those 14 leadership principles very seriously and as you mentioned where people say that we we hire the the, the best people everyone can't hire the top 1% of people it's just the math doesn't work out that way so what you're looking for are people who come in and reinforce your your culture and uh, the, what's one thing that's different about amazon's uh, interviewing process is there's an interviewing panel, usually about five to seven people, and they're each they're signed one, uh, you know, two or three leadership principles. And one of their primary roles in the interview is to go find out how the candidate has exhibited the, their assigned leadership principles in their past career and find examples of that. And and so one unique thing is, by definition, those interviewers don't necessarily have complete information at this time on whether. This person is a good fit. They do have a very specific job, and I'm going to set aside the functional skills because those differ by roles. You know, are you a good software engineer? We, we do did that at Amazon too, and, and take that very seriously. But so you have your you know five to six people going into the interview, and and they have um, they have to control the interview too. You know, it's they they're. they're because people, the rest of the panel is counting on them to figure out, okay, I know I, let's say I'm an interviewer. I know I have invent and simplify ownership and customer obsession. No one else is really working on that. I've got to get that information from the candidate and then bring it to the, the interviewing panel afterwards. Uh, the, the second thing that um, Amazon does is uh, written feedback is is mandatory. And it's it's mandatory and you can't talk to other, other um, interviewers unless you've, entered your feedback and voted. And that's to prevent bias where, uh, you know, if you hey this is a great candidate, you should go in and sell. I don't wanna know that going into an interview when I'm I'm interviewing someone because I wanna collect information in an objective manner. And then when I have to write it down, I know I'm gonna have to defend my assessment in front of my peers, not knowing what they're writing. So it, you know, it focuses the interviewer to, to, to collect that information. And another thing that's unique is that Amazon has a debrief meeting where all of the interviews get together. Some companies have the recruiter and the hiring manager read the votes or the, the feedback and then make the hiring decision. Um, I personally think that's a missed opportunity, a missed feedback loop. So with what happens at a, a debrief, they're called debrief meetings. After everyone's interviewed the candidate, you get into the meeting and then you release the feedback to, you know, through a shared document. And everyone starts reading the feedback and and, and the votes. And at that point in time, the bar raiser controls the process. So the bar raiser is someone who um, is typically not in the chain of of command for the, the, the hiring manager. So their job is just to make sure, does this new candidate, if we hire them, do they meet the bar? Do they raise the bar at Amazon? And, you know, so they don't have urgency bias, Uh, you know, a hiring manager may say, I need to hire these two or three people, um, or they're not going to, uh, I'm not going to hit my goals. And so the hiring, the bar raiser runs the meeting, you can change your vote at that time, and you read through the feedback and then discuss, does this candidate, um, you know, is a good fit for the role and and why and you have it's a data driven uh, approach. And where the feed, where I said there's a feedback loop is there's, there's almost every debrief I go into. I either learn something new about how did you get that information from the candidate? Or, you know, this is great. So I become a better interviewer or I teach, you know, other interviewers. Here's types of questions and here's how you can get information. So there's a feedback loop where it's an example of a great process. Is it's simple to understand. It's teachable. It's not relying on a specific individual. Some people just are inherently great interviewers. But you don't have too many of those at the company, and you don't want to have just relying on that one person. And, uh, and so that is – the and the bar raiser process, once we started it, everyone else started using it because it was so effective.
1: So that process, I've heard things that are adjacent to it, and I think there's a nice spin on a couple of things. But the bit that really stood out for me was the, the idea of a single-threaded leader. And partly because of the story you first told on it. So, um, I think you give uh, an example, which you say, um, you say something like the best way to kill a project is to give it to someone part time. Or, uh, I think that's the example. And, um, and so you say, as a consequence of this, there was a moment where a decision came to. Jeff, I love the fact that we're on first name terms. Um, the, the decision came to Jeff and uh, he said, look, you know, this issue is you haven't got someone to run it from day one and I'm not going to approve it until you've got someone. Really interesting. Uh, and and so I'm interested to explore this idea of a single-threaded leader. What is it? And look, the, the, thing, the thing that I'm really intrigued about it when I read you, you describing it is that you say – Here's the quote. Here's a quotation that I cut. Uh, I think this was uh, Mr. Bezos. You said, uh, uh, "You say this actually." Um, uh, Jeff wanted Amazon to be a place where builders could build, and wanted to eliminate communication, not encourage it. You know, as in, a good company would would run on APIs connecting people, not emails. Now, this is a really fascinating and timely idea. The the idea that there's not thousands of dependencies and we're not spending all of our, our time emailing each other, but rather we're empowered just to be in our lane and get on with it. <laughs> now, this seems to me one of the biggest differences. So I'd love you to articulate what this feels like. And, and am I wrong in thinking that this is a big deal?
2: It, it is a big deal. And in order to get there, you need to have your technical architecture needs to it needs to be separate so teams can work independently and you need your organizational decision-making architecture separate too. You know, if you're at a company and you have to go talk to three or four people just to either beg or borrow resources or convince them it's a good idea and, and they need to weigh in on that. That's an example of an organizational dependency. And technology dependencies are I can't do this until I get three or four other software teams to write something, some code for me to, to, to build this product. So we wanted to figure out where those dependencies were, get rid of them so you can, you're in control of your own destiny. And you know, a place where builders can build means that you have an idea. You have the resources and autonomy to go do that. You're actually held accountable for it too. You know, so the the accountability and autonomy go hand in hand. But um, so the the quote, it was Dave Limp, who was the SVP of Devices, said the best way to fail at inventing something is to make it someone's part time job. So, If there is a problem in your company or an opportunity in your company that's big enough and it's worth doing, you need to have a leader who's capable of realizing that vision and who knows what success looks like, who has done it before, ideally, and has the resources on the team and the freedom to go build that. And you know it sounds easy, but it, it's it's harder than it sounds to, to to do. There was one example with a, a product uh, called Fulfillment by Amazon. You know it started off as a great idea, just never got done. It was number eight or nine on people's list. And Jeff Bezos and I, I was with it, you know, it his technical advisor at the time. but every six weeks, we'd get an update on this project. Sometimes there'd be a different product manager running it and, well, what happened? And that's the time Jeff said, hold on, this is not going to get done. And he said to Jeff Wilkie, who was running the operations at this time, I need one of your senior leaders to work on this and nothing but this. And so he took Tom Taylor, who had a big job. And went to a team with no revenue, and 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 but it was it was a great idea, and the total addressable market could be big. And he actually made that work. And you know, a, a year later, f- what's now known as fulfillment by Amazon came out, which is really the blue between Amazon Prime and third-party marketplace retailers. Um, that would not have gotten done. It was a complicated project, so you needed a VP like Tom to go uh, run that project. You didn't, you couldn't do it with a. A junior project manager, product manager running that. So, you know, it's single threaded, but the person has to have the the skills to get the work done too. I I found the idea of of that intriguing. Now, obviously, you know,
1: I mentioned communication along the way there, and and probably one of the things that has transcended into the stuff of legend is the different way of communicating, not least silent meetings. And I've I've talked uh, on my podcast here about silent meetings. I just wonder if you could characterize that specifically, how that generally worked in the organization. You say that that's the one thing that people probably find most surprising, jarring when they make their way in. I'm just intrigued. Are there any other elements of communication that are, are strongly different from what people might normally
2: experience? So uh, that, that is the big one w- with narratives. And it, and the the thing that we realized is that we were using slides, which are a presentation tool um, as a decision-making tool and, you know, to, to, to shorten that. And, and we realized that we wanted a better decision-making tool. So we moved from slides to narratives and, the, you know, for a bunch of reasons, you could put a whole lot more information you know, pixel density into narratives. You could have multi-causal arguments in a narrative versus the hierarchical slide. Uh, you know, business is complicated. So you need to have complicated, uh, you need to have, be able to address those complicated ideas, you also uh, force the, the writer or writing team to have clarity of thought in what they're going to present before they get in front of an audience. And you know, then you know, people, also, they read faster than they talk, so you can get through more information. So at, at Amazon, what we decided to try to do was, how do you pack as much information into a one-hour meeting to have a high-quality discussion around an idea to leave the meeting with a better idea or a better decision that you entered? And what some companies say, "Well, just let's keep it high level. It's the executive team coming in. We don't have time to get in all the details." Amazon inverted that to say, "We we finally have the executive team coming in. How can we get them up to speed as quickly as possible with as much information as possible, so these experienced leaders can help us uh, shape a better idea." And the way that the the meeting works, it, it's it's if you go into your first Amazon narrative meeting, it's kind of bizarre chit chat. And then it's, hey, let's get started. Someone hits a button and the document is shared or passed out, um, you know, if you're in a conference room together. And it's silent for 20 minutes. And if, if you were to look at another bandwidth of what's happening, there's just a massive amount of information that's being transferred from the presenting team to the audience. And that in the audience, they're entering comments, asking questions in the document. And then you have 40 minutes of really rich informed discussion dialogue and you and you leave the meeting with a better decision typically than, than you would if you used slides where you have uh, you know 10 times less information and and the you never very few presentations actually make it from the first slide to the end without getting peppered and, and, and derailed but with the narrative you get to read the whole um thought, you know, story arc, and then comment on it, which is another aspect that's unique. And did the format evolve at all over time? Very little. So it's, it was uh, June of 2004, and it, it started off with uh, Jeff Bezos and his management team called the S-Team uh, me, uh, meetings, where there are teams that would come in and present slides. And Jeff just said, starting next week, we're going to write uh, memos instead of going over presentations. It actually turned out that that email said a four-page memo, and we, we've just found through practice that six pages for an hour or you know, or less is about the right information density. So that changed a bit, but um, we, did, we were not too prescriptive on what the format should be. It's just the, you know, the narrative and clarity of thought. And then the other thing is once you get a couple good examples of here's what a great narrative looks like. They're shared throughout the company. And so people know where the standard is. And um, and you know, people just started adopting narratives. that only started at Jeff's staff meeting or his management meeting, but other teams started adopting it because the managers realized, this is a better way for me to make decisions than using slides. So I'm going to start requiring other teams, my teams to do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really intriguing. And, and six pages, actually, is not insubstantial. I'd have thought, you know, a few charts along the way and a bit of text, but that's, it's a reasonable writing project. So someone told me I said to I read a war story on silent meeting somewhere. And I um and I asked my friend at Amazon, I said, Oh, and are these the only meetings you have? He says, No, no. We do have standing meetings as well. Um, but you know, a big decision, a big strategic direction or something that we're deciding would happen. Is that right?
2: It is correct. So the narratives, I, I think it's important. To, it's a tool. It's not a way of operating. So it's a decision-making tool. If you're going to go in front of a group and make a decision, narratives are, are the way to go. But the, some of the standing meetings, you know, if you have one-on-ones with your direct reports or uh, there's a standing meeting that different groups have called a weekly business review, you're reviewing you know, pages and pages of, of, of metrics. And it's not; it's typically not a, in, in a, a narrative format. That's just because you can get the information in different graphical displays, more information in graphical displays to answer what did my customer experience last week, or the and is that experience getting better week over week. So, yeah, it's it's used for decision making. The narratives are,
1: and I think probably the the thing that intoxicates people about amazon is that this relentless innovation improving the product delivering new things whether it's these sort of uh, cam in home cameras the bananas in home drone or whatever like you know it there's just a vision there that's just executing incredibly quickly and so i'm presuming that's built on this working backwards idea this idea of start with what the consumer wants and then and then work back but I'd love you to differentiate two ways because I can definitely see that when it comes to Kindle. Okay. We want a product that is a seamless delivery over, over, you know, um, GSM airways or whatever that will deliver a product to anyone in the world. Anytime they want it. And we're going to sell every book. Boom. I can see starting backwards, working backwards. How you do that. I, I find it harder to see on prime that I love. I adore my prime subscription. But it feels this uh, madcap selection of tennis on my TV, a selection of a random assortment of TV shows that often delights and surprises me, and my packages arriving earlier. It just seems like a bundle of delightful, but unrelated things and i'd love you to sort of illustrate the working backwards with regards to both of those products if you
2: could really. sure um so the beginning of prime i would start say that that did the idea and that did not go through the working backwards process at the very beginning it was okay it started you know just before you know these processes the narrative thing was an example you could point to a single day in a single event to say here's when amazon switched to narratives for jeff's uh staff you know management team meetings the working backwards process was an evolution. We tried different formats of documents and and different teams took a while for different teams to use it. And, and prime was at the very, very early end. It did not go through that, at least in the beginning, once we knew we wanted to launch prime, the team did build a working backwards document. But, um, with prime, it was, it's more long-term thinking where, uh, we were, and 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 customer obsession really shine through. We realized that our bi- the growth rates so business was growing, but those growth rates were going down. And if that trend continued, internet growth was going to continue. We Amazon would be a less and less relevant part of customers' lives with the wow. three to five day shipping. So. You know, our customers were voting with their their wallets to giving us, I don't know, a a B-grade on, yeah, it's it's okay if you need it in three to five days. And we realized someone else was going to cannibalize us with next day or two-day shipping. May as well be us and so we we just started to do that and you know it started small and it didn't have you know prime video attached to it prime video didn't even uh, exist then or the kindle lending library but we what we wanted to do is create a premium experience for our best customers which was the all you can eat 2-day shipping for it started out at $79 in the US in 2005 and that grew over time. And we, from early on, you know, Jeff had said, we'll eventually add other features because this subscription plan, one of the benefits is it breaks a lot of ties. If it's your best place for movies, if it's the best place to go to get, you know, a free two day or same day shipping, it just takes a lot of cognitive load out of the customer's mind. So we, we, we knew from the early on, we wanted to augment that. Um, but, yeah, but it took, it took a while to figure out what benefits, um, you know, get there. And I think Kindle Lending Library was the next one. And then Prime Video is actually a great source of, of, uh, Prime subscriptions. But for, for the, for the Kindle, if I were to go back on how working backwards was used there, it was absolutely used It was one of the first groups. And I don't think the Kindle, uh, Device would would have looked like it did unless we went through that process. We were using the standard MBA tools, uh, you know, the SWOT analysis, how big your market going to be, you get your gross margin, how do you uh, negotiate with vendors to get selection on the platform. If we get 3% of this market, here's what it's going to be. But Jeff kept saying, well, what is it going to look like? Like, show me the mock-ups or uh, like walk me through how I buy uh, a, a, an e-book. And it and, and it forced us through a couple of things we realized going through the process. One, we realized what is really important for the customer And, you know, it it was large selection, the always on with through the GSM network, which was, you know, iPhones didn't exist yet. So having always on devices with no cell plan, mobile plan was unusual at, at the time. It's now everyone thinks, you know, you're connected everywhere um and it had a magic to it i you know i used to use it if
1: i was traveling abroad to buy the daily newspaper and it had just a magical quality it prevented me from having to to go and find a newspaper kiosk on the outskirts of some Egyptian
2: city. It was it was wonderful. Yeah, and then we realized that um, the value that we could create with with the e commerce business was really in the middle. We were an aggregator of lots of products, and we could throw two items in a box and ship it to customers relatively efficiently. In the digital world, that doesn't exist. It's non trivial, but it but most. Decent-sized organizations can build a complete digital catalog. So there's no value into how I have all the music produced. I have all the you know the 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 good selection of videos. We had to move out into either end, and you know one end would be the devices or apps, um, and then the other end would be working with the content creators. So we realized we need to be a hardware manufacturer. We didn't. We hadn't made a single piece of hardware at that point, and this was in 2004 and this is where being customer obsessed is it changes what you do because you realize this is what our customers want from us it's not what are we good at and what can we build and push it onto customers and so we started the long arduous process of learning how to build devices because that's where we could differentiate with a kindle paper white screen you know it, you know it's a different display technology and and how you get the the always on it was whisper sync is what, what, what we created would not have done that if we used the traditional methods about the skills forward approach for Kindle. So those are, uh, that's a big difference with how, how the Kindle evolved. I'm I'm intrigued.
1: Probably the, the other success of, of Amazon was AWS. And, uh, I mean, just a, a vast business in its own right, really, you know, it was always before this year, it was always rumored that, you know, it would be spun off, profitably spun off. Um, AWS. What was the thinking behind AWS, and did any of the values inform that?
2: Yeah. So um, we used the AWS and Kindle. I would say were the first two major groups to use the working backwards process. And with AWS, we realized, hey, there is a trend uh, that that that's changing the way people build and companies build and deploy software. Cloud computing wasn't, the term wasn't invented yet. And we thought it was worthy to experiment. uh, One, because it's a very large addressable market. And two, because there were very real customer problems that we were experiencing on our own just to build and operate the Amazon.com website that we knew lots of other business customers were, were feeling the same pain. So if we could invent something here, and, and open it up rather than, you know, take all of our, our work in R&D and just make it available to one website. How do you make it available to anyone who wants to build and deploy software on the web? And we spent about a year and a half writing working backwards documents for the various services. Some of them never saw the light of day. It's an iterative process, and we realized well, this isn't what we want to do or what, it's not what we want to do right now. So we stopped working on that and we stopped writing those documents. But um, but the other one is it took us a while to figure out what were the core customer problems we were going to solve and, and how are we going to simplify? We wanted to release very simple services in the beginning. And one example is with um, if you take uh, EC2, the Elastic um, Compute Cloud, uh, it first started off as a project. To, it was hard for us to build servers and deploy servers, computer servers, to run part of the website. So the project started off called provisioning. It was just how you create a, you get a, you know, a, a server, you put the right software on it, you connect it to your data center, and it turned out really what we wanted was to, we wanted to sell compute cycles to anyone on on the web. That was a journey that the working backwards process took us through, and one really. Um, aha moment is someone i wish i knew who wrote this said we want to any person in a college dorm to have the same access to the same world-class infrastructure that an amazon developer would that was a light bulb that went on to really say okay we can do this and we're going to go build it
1: and look and the the space you occupied the space with without much competition for a long while which was uh was amazing as well um so so look we're we're running out of time people must Hit you up all the time, and 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 I, I adore the fact that you've written the manual for for this company that intrigues us so much. Um, g- give us maybe one or two pointers. You know, maybe surprising things that you learned about the organisation, or or differences under the bonnet that under the hood that people wouldn't necessarily spot from the outside. If people are thinking we need to be more Amazon. Is there anything that you'd say, okay, reach for this as much as anything?
2: Well, one thing I, I uh, that was misunderstood is that long-term thinking, people, often people think it takes you longer to get to your end goal. Long-term thinking often gets you where you want to go faster. And that's because How you're- so. You're, you're not distracted and you're, you're very clear on where you need to go. So um, the, another thing is, you know, people say, well, you're Amazon, so you can go do that because you're this ginormous company and you have all the resources Getting resources at Amazon is actually quite challenging. You have to, you, you know, you have to convince that it, you know, that the appetite for Amazon to invest is is much bigger than the, what Amazon is going can afford to invest, and um, so you have to really be um, frugal with your resources. But, um, you know, and then the other thing is that these processes that we describe in the principles, they one work across a number of different industries, and they've been proven to work across. You know, e-commerce, heavy li- lifting logistics, streaming of bits like with Prime Video, AWS, which is B2C, it works in um, B2B, sorry, and then, you know, B2C businesses too. And they work for organizations, small organizations and large organizations too. Most of these processes started off with small teams at Amazon and 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 that's where they were developed. And so they can work in an organization of 20 people just as well as it can in an organization of 200,000 people.
1: One of the interesting things is that um, I was I was out to dinner with some colleagues uh, about three or four years ago, and we all had a discussion amongst ourselves of which would be the biggest company in the world in a decade's time, and uh, we all went around the table. I think people scribbled it on napkins, and eighty percent of the people around the table said Amazon, and uh, it's it's close right now, but it's it's not quite the the case yet. Um, all things considered, based on the size of Apple, the size of Microsoft uh amazon's uh, a small way behind what do you think the 10 years ahead will have in store Do do you believe that this culture is differentiated enough from those competitors that amazon
2: can go on to even greater things I do for two reasons. One is that Amazon put a whole lot of work and, and effort into creating what Jeff Bezos called the invention machine, and it's these sets of principles and processes that work and across a number of different areas. And you know, just AWS and the e-commerce are proof positive that you can take a company that works on one thing and creates a whole new business. You know, that with no tailwinds, quite honestly, from the other part of the business. Uh, the second thing is both. Amazon's retail business, the e-commerce business, and uh, AWS are working in very, very large markets. They're so large that they're virtually unconstrained, and Amazon is still a tiny fraction of both of those. So just in those two businesses alone, there is a lot of room to grow um, in the e-commerce business. Amazon is not even the largest retailer in the U.S., um, and, 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 you know, the, the, the B2B business software market, uh, the cloud transformation is just at its very beginnings. Uh, so, you know, there's plenty of uh, growth ahead for their existing businesses. But Amazon has an invention machine that it can move out into other businesses, too. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised 10 years now that it's, um, there's another, at least one more pillar of Amazon's business.
1: Um, thank you. Thank you so much, Colin. Um, tell me, what sort of feedback have you got from the book, the book Working Backwards? What sort of feedback have you got? It's been out a couple of months now uh, in the US. It's about six weeks in the UK.
2: What have people said to you about it? The feedback's been very positive. Uh, you know, We've been pleased with it. It's run, uh, feedback has run the gamut from... Um, one CEO at a public company said, I'd just like to cut and paste what's in the first part of the book into our processes here of, of what we're doing. But also for for smaller companies too, about how can we get leadership principles to define who we are and how can we um, create a hiring process? So we're going to grow from five people to 50. And I want to be the same company when we have 50 versus when we have five. Can you, know, can you help me with that? So it's been neat to see that the um, feedback crosses that spectrum. And then another surprising thing is, um, you know, there are 10 chapters, what people say their favorite chapter is often, it's often different. You know, there's not one chapter that everyone says, oh, this is my absolute favorite chapter. So there are a lot of lessons that can resonate with different people as, because they are different parts of their journey. Do you think Jeff will read it? Uh, he has a copy and yeah, I mean, I, we sent him when we started off, we actually wrote a working backwards document and sent a couple sample chapters and said, hey, we're, we're thinking, Bill and I, Carr and I were thinking of writing a business book. And yeah, folks at Amazon have, have read it and, and, and given us uh, great feedback on it.
1: I'm so grateful. It, um, look, you know, as I say, a, such a ins- helpful instructional guide to trying to replicate that invention machine culture. And, um, and a great read along the way as well. So, Colleen, I'm, I'm immensely grateful. Thank you for joining me.
2: Well, thank you, Bruce. Thanks for inviting me again. It was a great conversation.
1: Thank you, Colin. That was, uh, that was me going deep on the culture at Amazon with Colin Breyer. He's the author of Working Backwards, which is the, uh, the inside guide into the Amazon culture. And you'll find a link to that in the show notes. I'm so grateful for Colin spending the time to talk to me really, um, and sort of explaining, really the differences in the Amazon organisation. Next week's episode, fingers crossed, not recorded yet, so uh, always tentative, is going to be an an exploration into the challenges that Basecamp has had and one of the issues about politics at work. So um, hopefully you'll find that in your feed next week. As ever, the best way to stay in touch is to uh, sign up to the newsletter and you'll get that at eatsleepworkrepeat.com. Thank you so much for listening. Really grateful for you spending time with me. See you next time. Hold up.